0: We have a lot to work through this morning, uh, and so if you would, turn with me to Luke chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 16. Um, I, uh, I want to clarify, uh, we're going to be talking about leadership a little bit this morning, and, and the question might be, what context are we talking about leadership? And, and the first thing I want to say is that for all Christians, um, all of us are called to lead in a way. All of us are called to lead. All of us have been sent uh to make disciples of Jesus and so there's a there's a bringing and a leading people to Jesus that all of us are called to lead and so there's something applicable here for all of us um but I'm I'm going to be zoning a little bit more in on uh, uh elder uh, church elder leadership and house church leadership um, and, uh, and so uh, I just want to make that sort of clear. Um, there's something for everybody here this morning, but there's also a call um, for leaders. We actually need um, leaders in, in all sorts of areas within this body, including uh, house churches and, uh, and elders. And so we'll talk a little bit about that. But we're going to be looking at uh, five simple verses in Luke chapter 6. And they're verses that a lot of times people would just sort of gloss over wouldn't take really serious or spend a lot of, a lot of time studying these. In fact, I, I was looking at commentaries in preparation for this, and I noticed that a lot of the commentaries had very, very little to say about these five verses. And what's interesting about that is that what we're going to see here is Jesus is calling 12 disciples to follow him, who he names as apostles. He's going to spend three years training these people. And then he's going to commission them and send them out, and uh, like this is the beginning of that. Like this is the the groundwork is being laid for the church, and like it's pretty unceremonious, and yet it's really important. And so uh, read with me, if you will, Luke chapter six, beginning in verse twelve. In those days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named Apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. I want to pause and, and pray, and then we'll get into the message. Holy Father, uh, we ask you from the beginning to, uh, to be clear. Um, to remind us of, of who you are and what you've done and, uh, and help us to see the principles that you've laid out. Help us not to uh, be afraid and out of fear supplant your principles with our human practices in regards to leadership. Um, lead us into understanding this morning, I pray, Holy Spirit, that the words people hear are yours and not mine and, uh, and make, up for, uh, make up for what I lack. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, to sort of set the, the background a little bit before we dive into this passage, there's 11 verses that come at the beginning of chapter 6 um, that, that give, us, uh, they give us a background on, on which to see this really well, I think. Um, in verses 1 through 11, uh, Jesus encounters uh, religious leaders, Pharisees, on two occasions, and, uh, and in each of these encounters are really about what is lawful to do on the Sabbath day. Uh, what, what, you, what can you do or can't you do on the Sabbath day? And Jesus is accused, and his disciples are accused, of doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath day. When we, when we look at the Old Testament, we see that God establishes the seventh day a week as this, this beautiful day of rest and trust. We're supposed to rest on this day, trusting in the provision that God has for his people. It's about rest, and it's about trust, okay? Now, throughout Scripture, we see biblical principles, all right, principles. Uh, principles that are meant to guide the heart toward obedience to God, okay? Principles. But oftentimes those principles lack exacting practices. They, they, they lack exacting ways to live out those principles. And to the religious mind, uh, th- this, this can't happen. To the religious mind who needs principles or practices, they have to add the list of the do's and the don'ts. How do I live out this Principle. What rules do I need to come up with for the, for the sake of living out this principle so that I can be uh, made righteous by what I do, but also I can I can condemn and measure others because of what they don't do? You see, faith is is about the heart. Faith is about um, guiding the, the heart through principles towards obedience to God. Religion is about guiding the external part of, of a human being by, by governing its practices. Faith is about principles, religion is about practices. And see, these, these religious people that are confronting Jesus, they're all about practices. They have developed this very long list of practices that they refer to um, as the tradition of the elders. This was sort of a handbook that had, had been written before the time of Jesus, and they elevated this handbook of the tradition of the elders to be on par with Scripture itself. Like, they believed that, that if you, you disobeyed a tradition of the elder, you were disobeying God. It was on par with the very words of, of God. And so we see two occasions where these traditions of the elders are violated. The first one, they're walking down this road following Jesus, and, uh, and the, his followers are, are grabbing heads of grain and rubbing them in their hands and eating the kernels. And, uh, and, and they're looking at them do this, and, and according to the traditions of the elders, they just violated four of their rules. This is what constituted work on the Sabbath day. And so they confront Jesus on this. And Jesus' response to them is, is to call them back to a story in the Old Testament where a guy named David went into the tabernacle and he ate bread that was only for priests to eat. It wasn't supposed to be for him, but he was hungry and he he ate some and he gave some to his men. And what Jesus is saying there is that this whole principle of the Sabbath is not meant to keep hungry people hungry. It's not meant to keep hungry people hungry. There's something greater going on. There's a principle at work and your practices could actually supplant the principle instead of living it out. So the second occurrence, uh, Jesus is in a synagogue and he is... Um, uh, he's teaching and there's a man there with a disfigured hand and these Pharisees are waiting to see if Jesus will heal him because in their minds an act of healing, miraculous as it was, would be work and it would break their traditions and, uh, and so they're waiting for Jesus to, to heal this guy and Jesus looks at these men, knows what's going on in their hearts and he says, is it lawful on the Sabbath day to do harm or to do good? Is it lawful to, to give life or to take life away basically? He's asking this question, and they, in their hardness of heart, won't answer the question. So Jesus heals this man. You see, uh, in Mark 2, Jesus says that, that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That God has created this thing for our benefit. And, and since it's for our benefit, why would a person needing healing have to wait until Monday? If God made it for our good, Why would that have to happen? Jesus then says in in this passage, he says um, that the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's referring to himself, and he's making this huge statement, basically saying, I'm the one who made this, and I'm the one who decides what this is for. There's a principle at work here. And see, here's here's the problem with, with religion and faith. Like faith is about guiding the heart. It looks to the inner part of somebody. Religion looks to the exterior of somebody. And we can really be prone to judge people by their outward stuff and never seeing the heart. And that's what religion does. And that's what these, these Pharisees were doing. But you see, in developing all of these practices that become measuring sticks of our own righteousness and measuring sticks to judge other people, what we end up doing is supplanting the biblical principles behind them. One, we're going to look at biblical principles regarding leadership and the the establishment of leadership, the appointing of of leadership. And we're going to look at seven different principles, and I'll walk through those with you right now. Uh, The first principle is this. God chooses leaders, not man. God chooses the leaders of his church, not people. Okay, we'll talk about that a little bit more. Second uh, principle we'll look at, lone leadership is not good. Third, uh, leading can be a family practice. A little bit more about that. Uh, train the called, don't call the trained. That will need some explanation. Uh, diversity of perspective is allowed among leadership. Uh, the work is more important than the title. And lastly, God uses bad leaders too. So we're going to look at those seven principles. And then after we do that, we're going to look at um, the practices that the church has put into place that can actually supplant God's principles. Practices that a lot of church use use when it comes to appointing leaders that actually supplant the principles behind them, all right? So let's dive in. Read verse 12 with me again. In those days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Now, uh, Luke doesn't record what he prays. But judging by the context, the the first thing that he does after he wakes up or after he gets done praying the next morning is he goes and he gathers this group of people who's been following him. and, And from those, he appoints 12 people to be his disciples. And he calls them apostles. So we don't know what Jesus was praying, but Luke tells us that he was praying. And this is what he was praying for. He was praying for the people that he would appoint to this position of disciple who become apostle. he's pray- All night long, Jesus is talking to God the Father, he's in communion with the Spirit, and they are, are hashing it out, what it means to be a disciple of his. It is God who is choosing these 12 men. I want you to notice that it's not Jesus flipping through applications right? He's, he's not reading their testimonies. He's not looking at their responses to theological questions. He's not uh, checking to see, you know, uh, what kind of personalities they have from their assessments. He, he's not calling references. Like, he's not doing any of that. He's going to God to find out if these are the men that God has called to leadership. God's the one who chooses the leaders. We're going to come back uh, full circle to this one and spend a little bit more time on it, but before we do do, the- Let's look at the second principle. Lone leadership is not good. Verse 13. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. Now, successive leadership is the leadership where there's one person in charge and some one individual succeeds that person, right? And on down the line, the leader of the church is what, succeeding one after another, one after another. Um, Jesus doesn't do that. He, he chooses 12, He chooses 12, and he spends three years equipping them. Then he commissions them, and those 12 are supposed to go and make more disciples. More leaders of his church proclaiming the gospel and calling people to Jesus. Like, there's this this movement, but it's a movement of leadership, essentially. It's a movement of people who know God and and know his son and know the gospel, and they're, they're being called to him and being sent out at the same time. But lone leadership isn't good. And we see this uh, first in, in the Old Testament. Uh, Moses, he, he brings the people of Israel out of, of Egypt, out of slavery, and they're in the wilderness. And his father Jethro comes to visit him, his father-in-law. And uh, he, he's, he's, he gets up in the morning and he sits in this chair and all day long, people, the people of Israel are coming to him to have him sort out their issues, sort out their conflicts. And from sunup to sundown, that's all he's dealing with is people's conflicts. And it seems like he's doing this day after day. And so Jethro says to him, this isn't good. Exodus 20, 17 and 18. What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. So Jethro advises him to, to point other leaders to help carry the load. Now, we would look at that and say, well, he's still the guy on top of the pyramid. Moses is still the guy in, in charge. But he also failed. He failed. He sinned against the, the people. He sinned against God, and as a, a consequence of that, he never goes into the promised land. Joshua leads him into the promised land. Joshua, too, fails. He fails. Uh, he was told to, to conquer all the land. He didn't conquer all of it, and because of that, uh, the people would end up suffering for generations. The time of the judges. God would raise up a, a, a judge, and for a period of time, they'd be successful, and people would be faithful, but it didn't last very long. Again, Failure. Then the period of the kings, and and one king after another, even the best of Israelites' kings, ultimately failed. And and what the the whole of the Old Testament is pointing to is that there's something wrong with human leadership, especially when, when there's one guy on top. And so in walks Jesus. In the New Testament, we see the Son of God, he's taking on flesh, and he walks in on the scene here. But instead of being the guy on the top of the pyramid, he's the guy on the bottom of the pyramid and he's coming saying, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. To serve. A whole different kind of leadership is introduced. And it's this, this idea of raising up leaders not so that they can hold on to leadership selfishly, but they can generously give leadership away. Generously give responsibility away. It's not about one person who's on the top doing ever, whatever they can to stay in a position of power. Look at this uh, with me. Acts 14. This is something that um, we see throughout the, the book of Acts in, in a pattern for how the church grew. Acts 14, 21 through 23. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made, made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the soul of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders, plural, For them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This becomes the New Testament pattern for how the church grew. Leaders go, they're sent out, they proclaim the gospel in a new place, they gather believers together, they spend months, maybe even years with them, equipping them and getting them ready, and then before they take off, they appoint elders over them to oversee, like a plurality of leaders. Leadership, lone leadership, is not good. It's not good from from, uh, the the standpoint of a whole church. It's not good within a house church. Lone leadership is not good. We'll talk more a little bit about that in a minute. Uh, Third principle, leading can be a family practice. Um, I won't belabor this point, but I think it's worth noting. Uh, Simon, whom he named Peter and Andrew, his brother James and John. Um, It says also in there that there's uh, a guy... uh, named uh, James, who's the son of Alphaeus, and uh, a guy named Judas, who's the son of James. Um, And there's a lot of James and Judases in in the the New Testament. It's hard to keep them straight, but it might be that this is a father-son relationship. But we know for certain that there's two brother relationships here. God is including family relationships into this leadership circle. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. Fourth principle, train the call, don't call the trained. Let's take a look at the the type of men that Jesus appointed. Again, uh, Simon, whom he named Peter, Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. When you look at this list of names, you may not know much about them. We know some. We know that four of them were fishermen. We know one was a tax collector, and we know that one of them was a Zealot, which is an interesting thing. We'll talk about that in a second. But these guys were not of a higher class or high high degree of education, you could say. Um, Most uh, Jewish boys learned the Torah at an early age, probably knew the first five books of what we call the Old Testament, but beyond age 12, most kids did not get any sort of education. These guys would have followed their fathers to work every day and learned that trade, right? Um, we we see in Acts chapter 4 that two of these guys, after Jesus' ascension, they heal a guy in the name of Jesus. And they're brought before this council. And uh, it says in verse 13 of Acts chapter 4, it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. These disciples are uneducated, common men. So when Jesus is putting together a team, He's not visiting rabbinical schools looking for the best in class, looking for the smartest and, bribe, uh, and brightest of these young boys to follow him. What does he do? He goes to the sea and he calls some fishermen. He goes to a tax booth and he ta- calls a tax collector. Like he's he's not going around calling people who are well educated. He's not going around calling people who have the the good background. He's not going around calling people who have a resume. Instead, he's calling people that none of us would ever consider to be leaders, and he's going to train them. He's going to train them. Uh, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29. "'For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise.'" God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing, uh, bring nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. God is not looking for the arrogant guy with the resume. He's not looking towards the arrogant person who's got it all figured out. He's looking for the humble person, the teachable person, the one who can receive wisdom and instruction from him and to be taught. There's a difference between calling somebody who's already trained and training a person who's already called. Fifth principle, a diversity of perspective is allowed. Um, Verse 15 up there, I want to highlight the first name and the last name, Matthew and Simon, who was called a zealot. Matthew's also called Levi. He was a tax collector. He worked for the Roman government and he collected taxes from his fellow Jews in order to make himself uh, wealthy. He was a tax collector. He worked for Rome. On the other side, Simon the Zealot was an individual who would, would be like an insurgent terrorist almost. Like his desire would be to overthrow Rome. He would be somebody who'd be willing to take up the sword and actually kill Romans in order to free his land of the tyranny and the oppression of the Roman people. And here would be Matthew, the tax collector, who worked for his arch enemy. Can you imagine the two of these guys now are on a leadership team together? Can you imagine that? You think about, like, the the biggest Joe Biden nut you know and the biggest uh, Donald Trump fan you know, and you put them in a room together and all of a sudden, hey, you guys are on a leadership team together. There's room for some diversity because they're both going to come underneath a bigger story. Jesus' story. The sixth principle, work is more important than the title. The work is more important than the title. Do you notice that Jesus appoints these guys without any kind of ceremony? You think about this. These, these 12 apostles become the foundation of a movement that 2,000 years later And how many millions and millions of people now follow Jesus because of what Jesus did through them? And yet, when they became disciples, the the situation was like, okay, you, 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 come on. That was it. There's no, like, they come and kneel before Jesus, and he takes a sword, and he, like, knights them or something, right? There's no, like, cool hat they get to get to wear, right? There's no sash. Like, what do they get? I mean, kids who graduate from kindergarten get more ceremony than these guys got. Why? Because it wasn't about a title. It wasn't an office. It was a job, it was a responsibility, it was a role that they had. Jesus talks more about this in, at length, Matthew 23. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe what they tell you, but not the works they do. For They preach, but do not practice. Jesus is emphasizing the work that they need to do, the job that they have. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. What is look, Jesus, he looking for again? He's looking for humility. He wants humility. He, he's contrasting his leaders with the religious leaders of the day who are wearing these like, big boxes on their heads to, to show just how important they are. It would seem ridiculous to us, but that's what they did. And these, these gowns with long fringes that touched the... Like, the they, they looked like... The, they They look ridiculous. But in their society, they look cool, they thought. But here's the idea. Like, I'm, I'm calling you to a role. I'm not calling you to wear a special suit. You don't get to wear that, 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 a fancy collar or a, or a cool, cool purple hat or anything like that. Like, You're just going to do a job. Because you're not called to a position of glory and honor and power. You're called to a position of service and responsibility. Jesus does say that they will get that office. He tells his disciples in Luke 22, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials and I assign to you as my father assigned to to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. One day you're going to have the cool throne. One day you're going to have the office. One day you're going to have the title, but not yet. There's a job to do first. There's work to be done first. There's the making and multiplying of disciples that needs to happen. My kingdom needs to come first. And you need to be about your my kingdom, not your office. Next principle, last one we'll talk about. God uses bad leaders too. You notice in verse 16, And Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Feel sorry for Judas, the son of James, don't you? Rest of your life, you introduce yourself. I followed Jesus. I was one of the 12. My name's Judas. Not that Judas. Different Judas. Right? Have you ever known a couple who's bringing home a bouncing baby boy, and they're like, this is our new son, Judas. Right? There are certain names we know not to name our kids now. Judas is probably at the top of the list, followed by like Benedict Arnold or Brutus. We don't name our kids these things because they're known for one thing, being a traitor. Right? Being a traitor. God used Judas too. Do you realize that that whole night spent in prayer, Judas was on that list. And from the very beginning, Jesus knew what Judas would do. Jesus called Judas knowing full well he would betray him. Because God would use Judas in making our atonement possible. You know what? That's not the first time God used Pharaoh in showing and demonstrating his glory to the people of Israel. God used Saul. You think about King Saul. He was a a guy who was appointed by God for this position. He was a lousy king, a horrible, horrible king. But you see, if we didn't have Saul, we wouldn't get David. Saul tried to kill David. For years, he was on the run. From from Saul, David was was constantly worried about his life. Yet in this process, God is, is squeezing David and he's molding David and He's refining him and He's giving him this heart after his own heart. See, we, we wouldn't have David if we didn't have Saul. God uses bad leaders too. He uses bad ones too. So let's start applying these principles by contrasting them with, with common church practices that we see. We're gonna work backwards. So when we looked at moral failure, or uh, that the God uses bad leaders, a common practice in church is this moral failure always disqualifies leaders. Common practice is that when there is a leader who fails morally, they are done forever. They're done. You know what the difference is between Judas and Peter? You could, you could probably try to weigh out that Judas' betrayal was worse than Peter's betrayal. think you'd be hard-pressed to do that. The difference between Judas and Peter is that Peter repented. Peter repented. Peter came face-to-face with the knowledge of what he he did, and he repented of that, and and God broke him in that, and, and God could then use him to become the leader that he would go on and become. Some of us know leaders who have morally failed, And yet God in his grace and his mercy reached down and he put them through a crucible of refinement and and pain that would lead them to repentance in order that he could use them again. And they become better leaders than they ever were before. Failure shouldn't disqualify someone from leadership. Unrepentance of failure disqualifies leaders. It's the leader said, yeah, I messed up, but it's no big deal. You should forgive me and give me grace. That's not repentance. Repentance. But unrepentance is what can bring us back into that position, should should God choose us again. But a lot of times we want to set up practices, practices that could supplant the principles of God or the purposes of God because of fear, maybe worried about being hurt again. Let's go to the next one, principle six principle is the work is more important than the title, but often we see in churches the practice that the leader is an entitled office. The leader is an entitled office. Uh, If you ever wonder, why is my title preaching team lead? Because the people that invented that title wanted it to be clear that my job was about a role. I was to preach and I was to create a team of preachers. It's about doing something. And even though I'm the guy up front on weekend on week out, I'm not the lead pastor or the senior pastor. You know, the word pastor is a great word, but it's a better adjective than it is a noun. It's better describing what somebody is supposed to do rather than an office they're supposed to hold. You see, we have a tendency to elevate individuals and put them up on pedestals and to glorify them. And this can go to their heads. And and all sorts of things that can can happen that that are bad. They can, they can be persuaded by the world of the flesh or the devil that their immorality is not that immoral and that other people should do the same as them. They could be persuaded by the world that certain things that God has created and the order that he's made, it's okay to throw that out the window because culture can redefine that for us. And we can all of a sudden start having new standards for what it means to be human. We could be persuaded by the devil to twist the truth. The reality is, is this happens so much within the church. I mean, like the, the, the Catholic church has elevated one guy and given him a fancy hat and told him that he could change morality and change doctrine. And we try to do that too in the Protestant church. We give people so much glory and responsibility. We put them up on a pedestal and we, we allow them to tell us what the Bible says because we won't read it ourselves. We give over that authority to them and we glorify them and the end result is that we're following a man and we're not following Jesus. We have a pastor. We have a senior pastor, and his name's Jesus. That's who we follow. That's the only position that matters. That's the only title that matters. Next one. Principle number five says diversity of perspective is allowed, but the common practice in most churches is that political views define leaders and draw lines between them. I think that it's unfortunate that so many of our churches have been persuaded by what's going on in our culture to polarize just as much as our culture polarizes around politics. You have people who would say that this leadership team, we are red and you vote blue, so you can't come in. Or just the opposite. We need to, to recognize that politics, they fall underneath the authority of God. but There are some things in there that we need to listen for and listen to, if we want to make a difference in the world. We need to be good listeners. We need to be good listeners. You hear me? <laughs> we need to be good listeners. See, the reality is, it is at its best. At its best, the Democratic Party actually lifts up the poor and the powerless. And at its best, the Republican Party seeks to end tyranny. And both of those ideas come from the Bible. They're God's ideas. Now, I'm not saying that we take people's politics and we put them above God and allow politics to shape what we believe, but we need to to come underneath them and we need to seek to listen to one another and to hear perspectives from one another because we become stronger in that. To have a leadership team seeking understanding despite differences is one that can foster unity among a people. Next one. Train the call, don't call the train, versus the idea of let the pro do it. Let the paid professional do the ministry. For so long in our culture, we have professionalized ministry. We have all been called as followers of Jesus Christ to go and make disciples. And what we've turned that into is this idea, I can't go and do that very well. I don't have time, but I have enough money, so I'll pay the professional to do it. So discipleship is all about something that happens in a building like this. I'll get people to the building, or I'll come to the building for discipleship, right? Missions or evangelism, it all happens in a place like this, so I'll get my unsaved friends to come to a place like this so let the paid professional tell them about Jesus. Worship. Worship can only happen in a place like this with stained glass windows and a piano. So I'll get people to come to here and I'll come here and this is where worship will happen. Like all of what it means to be a Christian is what happens in a place like this and it's led by paid professionals because we don't really want to do the work ourselves. Um, I want to pick on Tristan a little bit because he's not here. Or is he? Maybe not. I'm just going to pretend he's not here if he is. Um, A while back, we hired Tristan to be our family team lead. And family ministry team lead is the official title of that one. And um, Tristan uh, doesn't have um, a ministry degree. He was not a a paid staff member on a a church doing this work. Um, He sort of changed uh, what he was doing in order to take on this job. And the truth is uh, about Tristan, like there's some areas of growth for him. Uh, and uh, and we're coming around uh, aside him for that, but um, the reality is, is there is nobody I've ever met who is more relational than Tristan. I've never met anybody like Tristan who can sit down with somebody and listen to their story, and interact with them and ask good questions, and can uh, intersect them with the gospel. I've never met anybody like Tristan who has that ability to do that. And the truth is, is that there's some things he needs to grow in development, develop wise there's nobody I would want discipling your kids but more than Tristan and if you've had a good conversation with Tristan you know when you walk away two things he loves Jesus and he actually cares about you but Tristan's not trained he's called and I know that he has the Holy Spirit living in him and it's coming out of him in in beautiful beautiful ways and so let's train him up. I think the sky is the limit for this young man when it comes to ministry. I think that, that God is going to use him to do fantastic things that we can't even dream about. I know that about him. See, it's it's about looking at somebody and, and not going after the paid professional to do the work we don't want to do. It's about engaging someone. See, the church needs to own the ministry, it doesn't need to delegate it. Next one. This one I won't spend much time on. Leading can be a family practice. Um, Oftentimes, churches prohibit um, family members from serving together on leadership teams, whether that's a a marital relationship or a blood relationship. um, Oftentimes, that's just prohibited to prevent nepotism and favoritism. Um, Generally, this comes out of something bad that went wrong, and uh, and so rules are made. Just to be clear, we saw in the passage of Scripture, there's no biblical foundation for that. In fact, you could argue that there is a biblical principle for relationships, personal relationships within ministry. Won't belabor that point, though. Principle two, lone leadership is not good versus the practice of installing powerful individuals. This um, sort of piggybacks on, on something I, I, I said uh, a, a while ago, but there's some emphasis that needs to be added here. Where we tend to put leaders up on pedestals and to glorify them, right? They, they can they can uh, begin to usurp and, and, and take on responsibilities that they don't have, take over too much control or too much power. On the flip side of that, they are oftentimes overburdened, overburdened. You, you look at a church that maybe is a mega church and they have a powerful personality at the center of this mega church. They have this powerful person who's very charismatic and an excellent communicator. And just, he is just this, this, this force that people are, are drawn to. And yet, it's all built around him. And so if there is a moral failure, that church will explode overnight. It's just gone. It just disappears in this vacuum that was one person. See, I believe that for every pastor that goes to to pornography or to addiction or to some other adultery or whatever happens, for every pastor that does that in a way to cope with ministry because of the pressure, there's another pastor who does that in order to get out of ministry that there's something underneath that wants to self-destruct and he wants help for carrying the burden of people and he wants to be able to ask but he can't ask the question or he knows he would be refused or he knows he'd be knocked off his pedestal and the only way out of ministry is to shoot himself in the foot. The only way to get out of the trench is the only way out because we put too much burden on one person. It's not the way it was supposed to be. See, the leadership model is giving away responsibility to more and more and more and more people. The plurality of leaders is required to withstand the burden of leading many. And that is applicable not just to the leadership of a whole church, but also to the leadership of a house church. Last one, God chooses leaders, not people versus the practice of superficial processes used to determine leadership potential we need to ensure that we have good leaders. As the leadership goes, so a church goes. It's important that the people that we put into to places of leadership and authority over a house church or over a whole church, we need to make sure that we've done our due diligence and they're not a wolf in sheep's clothing. We need to protect the flock. And out of, out of a desire to protect the flocks, we're gonna come up with this long list of things and hoops for them to jump through because we think that if they get through our hoops, then they'll be okay. So there's an application and then there's theology questions and then there's references and then there's uh, interviews and then there's all of these things and we think that if we check off all of these boxes that will prevent a, a, a person from going rogue and hurting the flock. Why does Paul spend so much time in First Timothy and Titus talking about character? The character of a person. And how do you know a character of a person? Now I'm not saying that interviews and, and all that stuff is a bad thing. And I'm saying, and we're going to do it. And we do do it. But we can't trust in that to prevent bad things from happening. Because as we talked about, like God uses bad leaders, and bad leaders happen. But how do we know a person's character? How do we get to know that character? Jesus spent all night in prayer. He spent all night in prayer. That's how he knew. Now, We have a little bit more difficult time, but we can spend all night in prayer, and that's what we've decided to do. Currently, there are two individuals who we are looking at for eldership, and uh, there is the process. We'll go through the applications. We'll go through the references. We'll go through the, the theology questions and all of that, but before we make a decision, the elders have decided that we will spend 24 hours together in prayer, and we'll call the church to do that with us at the appointed time. And whether God affirms one or both or none, We pray that God would show us through that time. These are men of of character, we believe. But God knows their hearts. Now, there's another way that we learn character, and that's through time. It's through putting people in positions of leadership and watching how they handle it. Putting people in, in places where we can see them live out this faith. Now, if we were a, a centralized church model, what that would mean is that everything would happen here under the watchful eyes of a pastor, right? All the mission, all the discipleship, all the worship, all, the, all that other stuff, it would happen here in this building. And, and it, it's really easy for somebody to be able to put on a facade and walk into a building like this. Imagine going to the zoo, right? And, and you're, seeing, you know, you're seeing a lion in this, this habitat at the zoo. And you know the zookeepers, they've done a really good job of making it realistic, right? But does that lion have to hunt? Does that lion have to go search for water? No, like it's all provided there in the enclosure, right? If you wanna see what a lion is really like, don't go to a zoo, go to, go to the natural habitat, right? If you wanna find out a person's character, get inside their home. Perfectly, knock on the door first. But this is house church. Like spending, like uh, the house church enables us to see a person and their life. Do they really treat their wife that way? Do they really love their children that way? Are they really hospitable? Are they really generous? What happens when they're squeezed? What happens when they're in conflict with somebody else? What comes out of them then? You see, it's by watching a person over a long period of time in an environment like that, that then you know what's going on in their character. Or at least you have a better idea. See, that's the reason why before you can become an elder, you do need to be in a house church for a particular for length of time. Because character is what matters. We need God to show us who He's pointing to. Ultimately, do we trust God to reveal leaders to us? Do we trust God to provide leaders for the church? Do we? Or do we trust ourselves to be good gatekeepers? Are we putting our faith in God to bring forward the leadership that we need? Or are we putting our faith in practices? And if all the right practices are are in order, we'll keep the bad ones out and raise up the good ones. Or do we trust God? Do we trust God? I want to close with this. If you were to interview a person for the position of savior? Who would you call? Right? Who, the world is in need of a savior. The world is in darkness. The world is, is, is falling away from God. Like the world is in a really, really bad place and we, we need salvation. Who, who would you call to be your savior? Would you call up Donald Trump? Would you call up Elon Musk? How about Vladimir Zelensky? Right? Powerful men. Some of them know how to use weapons. You see, who we follow as Christians, as our Savior, I mean, think about it. Born to an unwed mother, in a stable, raised by a, a stepdad. His education never went beyond 12 years old, if that. He spent most of his life working with his hands in some sort of manual labor job, and yet he comes to a position where people start listening to him and, and following him. And yet at every step, when they try to make him, uh, give him a title or give him a position or give him power, he withdraws from it. He runs away from it. He probably never held a sword in his hand. And when he's accused, when he's, when, when he, when he's accused of wrongdoing, he doesn't even defend himself. He just allows them to say what they're going to say, no matter how wrong it is. He doesn't stand up for himself. I mean, what kind of leader doesn't stand up for himself? He allows these people to kill him. Like, this is this is our leader. Is he the guy that you would choose? With all of our human wisdom, when we're looking for the guy, the, the leader, the one we want to follow after, would we really choose Jesus? Well, he's the, he's the one that chose us. And the good news is, he is the one we need and we got him. Amen? You may not have, he may not been the one that you would have chosen, but he's your savior. But see, he changes our view of what leadership looks like. Doesn't he? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your plans are not like ours and thank you for that. Your ways are not like ours, and we thank you for that. You have undone uh, the damage that we've caused, and you're continuing to make it right. You have saved us from the punishment of sin. And even now, you're saving us from the power of sin. And one day, you'll save us from the presence of sin. And death and pain will be no more. But this is your plan, and your plan is good. I pray that we would trust in your plan. We do not want to be foolish. We don't wish to appoint people to leadership without doing due diligence. But we want to be a people who trust you, that you will provide, and that you will use this church in a beautiful way for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.